All right. So, um, yeah, I hope, I hope that you were able to have, we were talking about this morning with our little crew here, hope that you were able to have a wonderful, if different, Christmas. I saw some of you on Facebook with Zoom pictures, you know, Zooming with your families and things like that. And it's, it certainly is an ideal, but I, I hope that you really were able to find enjoyment and comfort and, and peace there. And if, if you haven't, uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that it's been a, a lonely time and a lonely Christmas for you. Um, it's, it's difficult when we're engaged in something that seems so celebratory and wonderful and, um, and you don't get to partake in that in the way that you would hope. But uh, regardless of, of how good Christmas is, it seems like, I don't know about you, but usually get, especially now that I have little kids, I get this kind of uh, Christmas hangover. I don't know if anybody can relate to that, that sort of feeling. It's, it's the kind of feeling embodied in that because Christmas is such a special time for us and, 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 and in our culture, we can't help but have expectations for it, you know, that everybody's going to get along and it's going to snow and somebody's going to get us that present that we didn't really tell them we wanted, but they're just going to read our mind and into our heart and they're going to give us this really wonderful thing and uh, we're going to eat all the food we want and, and not get gas or whatever it may be, that uncle's not going to get drunk and say a bunch of inappropriate things. Um, and, and inevitably, something doesn't go the way that you hope and, and you expect it to go. And for me in particular, it's right now, it's, it's about this sort of aspect of Christmas of uh, all the anticipation, ha- having little kids. This might not be where you're at right now, but at some point, I'm sure you could relate to this idea. And you're, you're, you're anticipating opening all these presents. And, and you open them, and you're, you were so excited. And then you get to the end of opening the presents, and then it's like, oh, you just kind of feel de- deflated. Like, oh, these were nice presents, but somehow, even though I got what I wanted or I didn't get what I wanted, I just don't feel the satisfaction I thought I was going to feel after all this Christmas stuff is over. And uh, I think this really relates heavily to this passage, not just because it's a Christmas passage from the lectionary, but also just because this passage is steeped in ritual. Uh, it's, it's steeped in religious ritual, which is, which is what Christmas is. It's, it's something that we do over and over repetitively every year uh, because it's supposed to impose and embody a certain type of meaning for us as a, as a collective that's what a ritual does. And uh, our ritual around Christmas in the United States especially has become for most of us so much about like how much stuff we can consume. You know, presents and, and food and, and, and media and things like that. And, and it's, a, it's a symptom of the, a larger part of our culture um, that uh, I don't know about for you, but for me it's been hard to avoid in this year of of quarantining and being at home and all that, but just this idea everybody's selling that we could be satisfied if we consumed enough of something. If we had that just that right like workout equipment or makeup or clothes or or like certain kind of food or car or whatever it is, you know, uh, uh, most people I know have bought something uh, during 2020 that they would have never bought otherwise 
And part of it's because of the marketing behind it, like that maybe you could get feel some satisfaction. So, um, you know, there's, there's ways that we all engage in ritual activity. And around Christmas, as I was talking about, just kind of consuming, getting lots of presents, getting, getting lots of things has become a ritual in our culture. It's not, a, it's not what we see in, in uh, the early times of Christianity. And it's important to recognize that no matter if you've practiced Christ, a Christian faith or another faith or no faith at all, that we all engage in rituals. And we all have rituals that impose meaning in our lives. So listen to this quote about, uh, about this from uh, James K.A. Smith. Uh, shout out to Drew Haltom because he loves this guy. That's, what, that's where I thought of him from. Uh, so he says, We all, whether naturalists, atheists, Buddhists, or Christians, see the world through the grid of an interpretive framework. That's what rituals give us. It gives us an interpretive framework, a way to see reality and make meaning out of what it is we're seeing and experiencing. We all have one. And he says, and ultimately, this interpretive framework is religious in nature, even if not applied with a particular institutional religion. So the idea there is that to interpret reality is, is a religious act, to to imbue an experience we have with a meaning beyond just itself, then that is a, a, a religious activity that we are engaging in. And this makes sense that we would all do this because we all share so many of the same experiences. We all share hurt. We all share shame. We all share celebration. We all go through grief and sadness. We all have hope for things that we might never experience and have never even seen before. So it, it would make sense that we would all need to engage in this type of ritualistic living and developing an interpretive grid for reality. It's, it's, it's everywhere in your life. It's, if you think about when you were a kid, how you came home from school, what you did when you came home from school every day. You probably had a ritual there. Or what you do when you, when you wake up in the morning or when you get home from work or how you greet people when they come to your house. Hopefully there's not a lot of people coming to your house right now. Um, or when you say goodbye or etiquette um, at, a, at a, a, a Christmas party, which hopefully none of you had, or how you do things on Zoom, right? Um, ritual is so much a part of our lives and you know like even if you send a christmas card and what that christmas card looks like and and all the things around that these are repetitive actions that we do to imbue meaning and give us an orientation of reality so we also most of us many of us listening uh Today, we grew up in a Protestant expression of Christianity that in many cases seemed to downplay or ignore the idea of a lot of, of, a lot of rituals, of liturgies and things like that. And at Christ City, we found ourselves attracted to that and recovered a lot of, a lot of those things. Um, but there, you know, just because ritual happens and it's a way that we interpret life, it doesn't mean that it always serves the purpose that it should, and that's why, for many of us, we've spent 
part of our lives, and maybe maybe you found this today. Some there's people finding this, you know, these these messages and our services that have never engaged with us before. Maybe you're finding yourself here today, and you've you've been disconnected from church, and you and part of it is because you saw empty ritualistic things happening, and that's why you moved away from it. You thought there was something not authentic, something fake or clickish or um, legalistic, judgmental, all of these types of things um, related to the rituals uh, that happened. Now, ideally, ideally, according to psychologist Eric Erickson, he says on rituals that they are a creative formalization which helps us to avoid both impulsive excess so like maybe buying too much stuff for Christmas or consuming too much stuff for Christmas and compulsive self-restriction. So maybe um, uh, hindering yourself because of shame and guilt that you felt. And um, that's what ritual can do. And, and we're getting to this passage. We're getting to this passage because that's what is happening here in this, in this Christmas story uh, where Mary and Joseph are bringing the, the baby Jesus into Jerusalem, and they're engaging in some important rituals that are a, a creative formalization that helps to frame reality for them, and it also makes the Christmas story possible. Uh, it's not just this baby in a manger, an angel just said something to a woman, and boom, there God just shows up on the scene. But this whole story is connected to a series of meaningful, creative, grounding, and interpretively framing realities of ritual. So we want to be able to reconnect with that. Because what happens is those of us who've abandoned this idea that those things are good, what we end up doing is we create our own ritualistic systems, whether we know it or not. And oftentimes, because of where we live, a lot of that's just replaced with consumerism, just buying stuff. I heard the other day on the radio that one of the ways that Americans have coped with the pandemic is that television sales have gone up 20% in 2021. So people said, well, I can't find necessarily the regular sources of meaning in my life, so I'll just enter entertain myself more. I'll just consume more. And I know days that I've spent more time on Instagram than I would care to admit, uh, that never works out for me. I never feel satisfied. Like, oh, I got enough entertainment. Now I feel really great about myself, and I, I feel really good inside. Um, not only that, but the sizes of the TVs that were sold went up too. So people were thinking like, well, we'll get a bigger TV and that will somehow like help us through this time. This will give us the satisfaction that we're, that we're missing. And this, this shows us, uh, this shows us a, a, the lack of meaning making and ritual orientation that exists in our culture right now. And and marketing and TV is all too happy to, to fill that gap for us and tell us, we'll make meaning for you. If you do this, if you buy this, if you get on this plan, do these programs, if you 
or do these kinds of things for your kids, then you'll feel satisfied. It doesn't work for me. I've tried it. I've, I've, I've been convinced by a lot of ads and I've tried them and they've, they've, none of them have left me feeling a sense of satisfaction. So we're going we're gonna to ponder this over the next couple of weeks as we look at these scriptures, this importance of ritual and how it orients us in the world in a way that can inspire us and that can provide creativity and it can allow us to see the very same things other people are seeing, but in a way that is transformative for us, a way that gives us satisfaction wherever we might find ourselves in life. So looking here at the verses, let's start in in verse 22. Go ahead and look at that with me. Uh, In the scripture, it says this, they're taught, they've, Mary and Joseph are taking Jesus uh, to Jerusalem and they are engaging in some rituals here. So it says in verse 22, when the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, speaking of Jesus, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. So we see uh, Joseph and Mary, and they're engaging in these things. It says the law of Moses. We're seeing them engage in very old rituals that have helped frame very in a very important time in the life of a family, the birth of, of a firstborn son. Um, you know, it says that they sacrificed a pair of doves or two young pigeons. I was telling telling the folks here last night, 1 a.m., I sacrificed a, a rat, a large mouse or a, a rat. That was my Christmas sacrifice. Uh, it's a little late for, for the birth of my, my firstborn son, but n- nevertheless, it happened. Um, so in, in the book of Exodus, chapter 13, verse 2, uh, and Numbers 18, it tells us a little bit more of the background of this. So it says in, in Exodus 13, to sanctify unto me all the firstborn, whatsoever openeth the womb among the children of Israel, both of man and of beast, it is mine, says the Lord. Numbers 18 says this, the first offspring of every womb, both human and animal, that is offered to the Lord is yours, but you must redeem every firstborn son and every firstborn male of unclean animals. When they are a month old, do we lose connection? Oh. Uh, when they are a month old, you must redeem them at the redemption price set at five shekels of silver, according to the sanctuary shekel, which weighs 20 giras. So um, there's a, there is a tradition and a ritual within the Jewish community connected to uh, the escape of Israel from uh, from Egypt, when the tenth plague happened, and all the firstborns uh, in Egypt, other than the ones protected by God with the sacrifice of the lamb, they were killed. And so this tradition came out of that, this ritual uh, given to them by God through Moses to say, um, anytime there's a firstborn male born, I want you to uh, give that child to me. But but you don't, have to, you don't have to sacrifice your child or do something like that like these other folks are doing, but you're going to redeem your child. And I, and I want you to do that to remember what it cost to save you. 
in this, in this uh, exodus episode from Egypt. And so it framed this event with meaning so that every time a woman uh, had a male child firstborn, this ritual that they would go through would remind them of this reality framing and shaping event for the people of Israel. And it was connected to this idea of redemption, of salvation. And so every time one of those children were born, it would reactivate that story. It would play out that story for the people of God. And this is fascinating because we are actually seeing a baby, a child, who is going to, with his whole life, embody this redemption on a level that's never been seen before. And so Jesus is born. He's, he's, he doesn't have a speaking role in this whole story. He's, he's a baby, and yet the story and the ritual around him is so thick that it's almost ironic uh, how we see him playing this part in this ordinary event of a child being born and the earth-shattering realities that come with that in this ritual. And so we find ourselves today, we find so many people lost, without meaning, without purpose, and we think we got to strike out on our own and try to find that. But what we find here is a story about the salvation of humanity rooted in deep ritual tradition and meaning. So I know, like I said earlier, we, we've abandoned some of these things for good reasons because we've experienced legalism. Like some people might look at this, read this passage and say like, oh, Mary and Joseph, they're so tied to having to perform all of these things and do all this stuff and uh, they can't just have their child, they have to go through all these things because they've experienced hurt and harm by not jumping through all the hoops that somebody's expectations had for them in a church somewhere or a family somewhere and that had uh, ideas about ways things should go. They had rituals that you were supposed to engage in, but there was no reflective and creative connection to those things. It just became about doing it for its own sake. And so it became a way of just judging people whether or not they fulfilled all of these rules and did it all these ways that you said they were stuck in sort of an adolescence of the faith of ritual. But that's not the way Mary and Joseph are engaging in this work here. They're in this ritual work. They are doing it because it connects them to this larger story. It reminds them of where they came from. It helps them to interpret the world that they live in now. And we all need help doing that. So going on in verse 25, look at this verse, these verses with me. This guy shows up. Named Simeon. It says, Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. So this is part of the big story here that they're in. And the Holy Spirit was on him. Now, I want you to recognize something about Simeon. He's not a priest. Okay, so they're in the temple doing these rituals. He's not a priest. He's he's some guy in Jerusalem. We just know he's a righteous guy, he's devout. And it says in verse 26, it has been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. 
when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, verse 29, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. Before I go on there, essentially, Simeon is is saying here, I'm, I'm taking it, he's, he's an older guy, because he's basically saying, now that I've seen this baby, I can die a happy man. I can die satisfied. And when I think about this conversation that we're having about satisfaction, about purpose in life, and the way ritual relates to that, it's fascinating to look at this man, Simeon, because he has hoped for something, the consolation of Israel. And it says, it says here in the scriptures that the Holy Spirit had told him he would stay alive until he had seen this Messiah. Not seen what the Messiah would do, not reap the benefits of it himself. And yet, just seeing this child, he's able to say, you can dismiss me now. I can go in peace. I can die a happy man because I have seen a development in this story, this story I've been a part of my whole life, this way I've interpreted all the things, good, bad, the celebrations, the griefs. I've seen hope embodied in this child, and I can die satisfied. We're seeing the, the beginning of the cycle with the baby Jesus of being a part of this grand ritual, this grand story, and the end of somebody who embodies what it looks like to be able to find purpose and meaning outside of just consuming life, which is what we struggle with so much here. So let's keep reading what he says. So verse 29 again, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. Verse 30, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. So he is here prophesying and saying, I have now seen this child who's going to bring about revelation for the whole world, for the Gentiles, glory for the people of Israel. He has this perspective that's grand and large. You know, sometimes there's this assumption, and maybe you've experienced it, that people older, especially older religious people, their world gets smaller, and they get concerned about less and less things, and their vision narrows. But here we see somebody embodied in the wisdom of this greater story, of this greater tradition, where he can look at a child and say, this child is the hope of the world, and I can die satisfied just having seen it. I want to be able to live in a type of way where I can find satisfaction in the connection of the consolation of my people, of the world, through these hopeful things, these hopeful appearances of God, and not be consumed with all of the things that my culture tells me to be consumed with. And here's, the inter- here's another interesting thing about this guy. It, it, it says in, uh, in verse, what, what, what verse is it here? In verse uh, 24, that the sacrifice that they offered, Mary and Joseph offered, 
according to the law of the Lord, was a pair of doves or two young pigeons. And this was a sacrifice for the ritual purification that Mary was going through after having a child. But the interesting thing is we find in the law of Moses, in the book of Leviticus, in chapter 8, verse 12, it has prescriptions for what the sacrifice looks like, and it tells us something important about Mary and Joseph and Jesus. It says, but if she cannot afford a lamb, speaking of this ritual purification after birth, she is to bring two doves or two young pigeons, one for a burnt offering, the other for a sin offering, so on and so forth. So basically it's saying, if you're, if you're doing well financially, bring a lamb for a sacrifice. If you're poor, bring some doves. Okay? So we see here, Mary and Joseph, are, they're not, they're not uh, financially uh, uh, well, well established at this point here, and they're probably pretty poor. And, and it's interesting that Simeon, he sees them. He sees them in the courts there. They might have looked a little shabby. You know, they might, 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 not, they might not have been able to tell um, that there was anything special about them by looking at them. But he had a perspective in which he was embodying the ritual understandings of his faith that he could look at them and he could see that baby. He could see that baby for what it was. He wasn't caught up in what so many of us have run from uh, in church settings or religious settings or maybe even pseudo-religious settings like political groups or things like that, where it's all about class, it's all about uh, socioeconomic uh, connections and what people can do for me. If he was caught up in those things, he would have completely missed this moment, but he didn't. He didn't. He, he was in a stage in life to be able to see things differently, and he did. So maturity here. So let's, uh, let's, let's keep reading here and see what else we can discover. In verse 33, the child's father and mother, it says, marveled at what was said about him, what was said about Jesus. You know, I think about this, uh, you know, so this is their firstborn kid. There's not a lot of people who haven't had their first child and haven't marveled at their own kid. Like, have you seen what, how my kids spit up? It's so much better than how every other kid spit up or like, Oh, he's standing for the first time and all this stuff. And it's like, it's just a baby. Like somebody else is looking this, unless you're related to him. You're like, yeah, that's just a baby. You know, like, that's what a baby does. It doesn't even have any hair. Looks like a little drunk person, but Mary and Joseph actually, you know, they're marveling about what was said about his child about their child, and they actually had like a really good reason to do, to do it. I just love that. I think that's funny. Um, nobody here thinks that's funny in the, in the, in the congregation here. Uh, so verse 34, it says, uh, Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, The child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be re- revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. So, um, you know, there's so many things here that Mary and Joseph could be concerned about. Um, They had uh, a lot to deal with up until this point with the birth birth of Jesus and the stigmas attached to Mary's pregnancy, um, that they didn't have a lot of finances, uh, that there was a king trying to kill 
uh, whoever this Messiah was. He didn't know. So many things for them to deal with. And yet they took time to take a trip to Jerusalem to engage in the bigger story that they were part of, to trust, to be held by that ritual, that faith that they were born into. And um, they found themselves in a place of wonder and marvel, that they were able to interpret the circumstances of their life through engaging with the rituals and the people that they came across in the midst of that, and it transformed their way of interpreting the world in this incredibly satisfying thing called wonder and marvel. I want to see the world that way. I want to be engaged in the realities around me in that way when I can look at ordinary things and be filled with wonder and marvel in the way that Mary and Joseph were. And I think we have that opportunity in front of us. And I think um, as we experience months of not being together in the building, I think that we can reflect on that and find, I was talking to somebody uh, who had a hard time, you know, engaging in the virtual stuff. And, um, and they said, you know, I was doing okay at first for the first few months. And then I realized, man, something is not right in my life. And I realized it was, I was disengaged from my church and the people, the rituals and the liturgies and all of those things. And it grounded me and it gave me a center. It gave me a way to understand what was happening in my life. And it was like a slow burn of realizing that this orientation that I had is gone. It's missing. Let's, uh, let's finish up this passage here. Uh, so verse 36 There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Here we see a woman far from the ideal circumstances of life, being a widow, um, but she steeped in Israel and the lineage of her people. We, We know who she is the daughter of. We know what tribe she's from. And we know that life didn't go well for her. And yet she's incredibly hopeful. She's a hopeful person to the point where she could see people who had something she didn't get to have, or she thought maybe might not last long for them based on what happened in her life. But because she was able to be a part of this bigger, grander story and narrative, she could look and see and verify and give thanks. It says she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Israel. So we see again somebody not steeped in, in bitterness or meaninglessness, who had a challenging life, but who finds herself connected and thankful in this bigger story. It's not as sexy as, you know, um, follow this workout plan and you'll be as happy as you've ever been because you'll be ripped and everybody will think you're great or, you know, you'll, if you do this thing, you'll attract the person you want to attract or you'll make the money you want to make. Um, but I do know 
It's more satisfying. And I do know that because Mary and Joseph were in this story, they were able to see what was actually going on. They were actually able to interpret things as they were taking place in a divine grand narrative. And I wonder how many things I've missed in my life because I wasn't willing to connect, because I wasn't willing to find myself trusting in things that are bigger than me, knowing, yeah, I'm, I'm special, I'm, I'm a unique person, but I'm also extremely predictable. And all the things that I want and all the things that I need out of life, every, there's, been a, there's been millions of people who have lived a life very similar to mine, wanted the same things, ached for the same things, looked for the same things. And that's where our rituals and traditions come from. They come from people making sense out of life. This is what Christmas time is about as we interpret this event of God coming to live with us in this person of Jesus in a way we would have never expected or been able to fully anticipate. But we look at it in the whole story. In verse 39, it says, When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. So as we end this sermon, I want to encourage you that you can find a sense of satisfaction in a connectedness to a bigger story, a story that doesn't begin and end with you, but spans the generations, that spans and connects us to the embodied nature of God in flesh that arose, arose, yeah, maybe, uh, in, in a very difficult time, in a very specific place. And the power of our rituals and our liturgies, as we're going to observe right now, one of them, to help orientate us and connect us to something bigger than ourselves through those things. So let's pray. Lord, uh, help us to see, as we need to do from time to time, the ritual of communion uh, fresh, differently, that we would connect with you and one another through this um, liturgy that spans 2,000 plus years uh, that Christians all over the world partake in. I uh, pray that we would find meaning for ourselves and, and for our community as we engage in it this morning. Amen.